I don't know about you, but it's incredibly humbling to be thanked um, when we should be saying thank you um, for the work that you do, the ways that you represent Jesus uh, to people that um, are just in one of the most challenging moments of life that we could even imagine. And I want to thank our church uh, every year. We pray and we ask God to lead us during Extending Hope. Um, and as you know, we, we don't put any pressure. We don't give you a suggested amount. We just simply tell everyone, talk to Jesus and tell him, ask him what to do with your money and do what he tells you to do. And year after year, we're amazed at how God has allowed us to be connected to his work, not just in our city, but throughout the world. And so I want to thank you for your faithful following of Jesus, your generous hearts. I hope today you are encouraged by the ways that God has used you in your prayers and your love and your generosity to impact people that you may never meet, but yet, however, you have allowed them to experience a touch of God's love and care. And so can we praise God for the ways that he allows us to be a part of his redemptive story? Praise God and thank you. We appreciate you. At this time, uh, we're going to continue in our sermon series. If you've been here um, for the last couple weeks or perhaps you've been listening online, we've been in a sermon series studying the book of Romans. And we're picking up where we last left off in that last week we read verses 1 to 14 of chapter 6. But if you recall, we focused on the first seven verses. Today, we're going to read them again for context, but we're going to spend our time really in verse 8 to 14. Let's read God's word. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this moment that we get to gather together as a people to worship you, to encounter you, 
to bow our hearts to your word and to ask you to speak to us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here, that you are the comforter and that you're with us and that you want to reveal Jesus and magnify him in our hearts. And we pray that you would do so today. And we thank you, Father, that we can encounter you in your endless love for us. We pray that you would give us open hearts and ears to hear you speak in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Last week, if you remember, we looked at verse 1, which begins with what feels like a very kind of dicey, precarious, kind of scary question for a Christian to be asking. The question is, shall we continue in sin um, that grace may abound? Uh, At first, it's very easy without the context to read this question as if someone is trying to find a loophole out of obeying God. Um, We're trying to find a way to say, is it possible to keep sinning and still walk with God? Uh, Like we're trying to hold on to something. But actually, the context of Romans up until now makes that question perfectly sane. Actually, is a very logical question to ask. Because up until now, what we've heard repeatedly over and over again is that salvation is not achieved. It is received. That what Jesus has done for us is not something that you and I earn, deserve, merit, or work for. It's something that we receive by grace through faith. And what we've seen thus far in Romans, it's, it's told the moral person, your obedience doesn't change or add anything. It doesn't make you more righteous, more deserving. And it's told the immoral person, the one that isn't trying to obey God, that your foot at the cross is at equal standing with the morally abiding person because it's through grace that both are saved. And so if you're actually understanding that, then this question feels very logical to ask, if my obedience doesn't change anything and my disobedience doesn't change anything, so should we continue to sin? But look at the way God answers that question for us. This is what's absolutely amazing to consider. The answer is not, no, you shouldn't sin because it dishonors God, though that's clearly the case. Or you shouldn't sin because it's harmful to you and others and, and, and it, it brings havoc into our lives. It, it, that's not the answer that we get. The answer that we get is you should not continue in sin because you died to it says, this is the reason why you and I should not continue in sin. It's not just because it dishonors God and it's harmful for us and it disrupts life. No, the answer is you should not continue in sin because of what Jesus has done. You have died to sin. What we unpacked is that what this means is in essence, it doesn't mean that you and I are incapable of sinning. How many can attest if you look at your, this past week and say, Pastor Chris, I'm here to report I'm still capable of sinning. You know, like you, you look at this past week, you're like, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the week, I was hopeful that maybe, you know, it passed away. But at the end of the week, I can tell you, still very capable of sinning. And so it's, when it says that we're dead to sin, it doesn't mean that you and I no longer have the capacity to sin. What it tells us is that us being dead to sin means that the reign, the authority, the power of sin over us, 
We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer powerless to it. It no longer runs and dictates our life. Praise be to God. This is what Jesus has done for us. So the answer to why we, you and I should not continue in sin is because we have died to sin. But it doesn't just tell us what has happened. It tells us how it's happened. If you look at verse 3, it tells us the, re, the way we've died to sin is by this means. It says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? But look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But now look at verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So it not only tells us that we've died to sin, but it tells us how we've died to sin. And we died to sin through what is understood as union with Christ. That God united us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That when he died, was buried and resurrected, you died, were buried and resurrected. I died, was buried and resurrected. We were united with him. Think of it this way. If I put a precious watch, how many people like fancy watches or or, are aware of them? I like them from a distance because I will never pay those amounts of money. I have friends that have them, enjoy them in good health, but never. I'm talking about watches that are 10,000, 15,000. And so if I put that watch or whatever that priceless thing is for you is like, I don't even have to think about a watch. It's my iPhone. It's the most priceless thing. Or whatever that thing is, if I put a precious journal in your pocket and then you happen to trip into a pool, guess what? That precious thing in your pocket has no choice but to be submerged with you in the water. And when it comes out of the water, it comes up too because... It's with you. It's united with you. And so what we're made to understand is that when Jesus died, we died in him. We were with him. When he rose, we rose with him. And through this union with Christ, everything has changed with respect to our relationship with sin. Sin is no longer the slave master over our lives that it was. You and I have been set free from this slave master. You and I are no longer slaves to sin. But even as I say that, I could feel the resistance for that to fully sink in. Because that thought process, it's new. It challenges the way we think. It's not our, it doesn't necessarily line up with our experience in some ways. And so there's a wrestling that has to happen in us in order for us to really understand the implications of it. But for now, imagine that the season has changed. And we're about to experience a season change. I hate to say it to you. But tomorrow officially ends the summer season. And 
There's like two groups of people. Those that say, it ended weeks ago. I'm there. And those that say, no, there's still a few more weeks. You watch. I was in the elevator uh, at a WeWork last week. And it was this, this guy I never met. And I, even though I'm deeply introverted, um, I like to roll the dice to see, like, what kind of social interaction I'm going to have. Let's just go for it. And so... I don't know this guy. He could punch me in the face. He could get upset. He may not welcome what I'm about to do, but I said, let's just roll the dice. And so he's in the elevator with me, and he has a thick lumberjack shirt, long sleeve. Wow, I love the visceral. No. And so, and so I rolled the dice, and I said, hey, man, it's still summer, bro. What are you doing? That, wear that after Labor Day, you know? But right now, it's still the summer. And I waited and he was like, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. I was like, all right. <laughs> Had a good New York moment. He didn't, he didn't say, who are you talking to? But in essence, what I was drawing his attention to is the season it hasn't changed yet, so don't dress like the season has changed. Spiritually speaking, the season has changed. Sin no longer has dominion over us, and what we're being told is don't continue to live as if that hasn't changed as if it still has mastery over us because Jesus has done something unbelievable in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so now Romans 6 not only tells us what Jesus has done and it not only tells us how it's been accomplished for us through union with Christ, but then in verses 8 and onward, it begins to tell us what your and my response should be. How are we to live in light of what Jesus has done? What should be our response? And actually, this cadence, this dance shows up in Scripture quite a bit where God does something that you and I could not do for ourselves, and then you and I, by faith, respond to what he's done. And so, so much of the Christian life is that rhythm. Jesus does something that you and I couldn't do for ourselves, and we respond in faith and gratitude, and it's in that kind of dance and that kind of rhythm that the Christian life blossoms and flourishes. God does what only he could do, and you and I respond to what he's done, and in that response to what he's done is this incredible life of following Jesus. So we know what he's done. He died in our place. He rose in our place, and we know that we're now dead to sin, and how was that accomplished? We were united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. But now, what do you and I have to do in response to this? That's the thing that we have to wrestle with. I remember this preacher. I loved hearing him when I was a, a teenager. When I was a teenager, um, I became a Christian when I was 14, September 26, 1994. And I just started high school. So every time this, this year... I get reflective, I think, about when I became a Christian. Um, and there was this preacher I used to love listening to because he was just such an incredible orator. His name is Joseph Garlington. Uh, he's from Pittsburgh. And he shared the story, which was really hysterical. He got married. He remembers when he got married. Young man, uh, met the love of his life. Um, and they, they dated, and they saved themselves for marriage. And so... Their honeymoon was a big deal. They, they went away to the Caribbean. Their wedding was a big deal. Their family celebrated. It was, and then they, they wake up they're, they're the morning of their first night together as husband and wife. 
and he's just kind of reflecting on the whole experience. And uh, he tells his wife, he says, you know, I don't really feel married. And she's listening. And he's like, yeah, you know, I mean, I know we had the wedding. And obviously, we were together last night. It was great. I love you. And, but I don't really feel married. Like, I'm, I'm, like, nothing in my feelings says we're married. And she said, well, you better align your feelings with the facts because we are married. <laughs> we are married. What we're told in verse 11 is essentially God saying, your journey as my follower is a journey of you aligning your feelings with the facts, of you coming to terms with what I've done. Because look at what verse 11 says. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider, uh, another translation uses the word reckon. Um, and and the, the nuance or in the original language, it has the idea of accounting, um, of, rec of, of reconciling accounts, of making the numbers make sense and add up. Also has this idea of the logic that flows from that reconciling of, a, of an account. And so hear what God is telling us. It's not enough that Jesus has done what he's done and he's done it how he's done it. If you and I don't consider ourselves in light of what he's done, then you and I will not walk in what he's made possible. Jesus has died to sin and through his death, we died to sin. He rose in newness of life and through that we rose in newness of life. All of this has been done. The question is, will you and I consider it done? Will you and I reconcile with those facts? Will we line up with the logic? Will we make the accounting work and be clear? Will we come under the logic of that? You and I... Our response to what God has done is an ongoing reckoning, an ongoing considering, an ongoing reconciling, where we are reconciling ourselves to the facts. You and I are learning and will continue to learn to let our feelings, our experiences, our memories line up with the reality of what God has done. And sometimes, if we're honest, what God has done and our feelings about what God has done could be on two separate continents. The journey is to get alignment, to reconcile, to, to, to reckon ourselves in light of what God has done. One of the most significant things that has happened in our lifetime, I don't realize um, if we grasp the full significance of it, is the official adopting of Juneteenth as a federal holiday. Because if you know the history of this holiday, then it's like about time. I, I can't believe it's 2023 and it, it only happened recently. If you don't know the history of it, and it's important for you to take some time and learn the history of it, because these days, 
everything gets politicized. And before you actually get in touch with the facts, you hear all this, you know, a scuffle about it. But if you know just the plain basic facts, it's an incredible moment. Slaves were emancipated, were declared free in 1863. Yet, in a small area of Texas, there were still slaves actively in bondage till 1865. Two years later, on June 19th, these slaves finally were able to experience the freedom that was declared for them two years earlier. And honestly, when I think about that experience, slavery was awful. The fact that there's even conversations about that there was benefits of slavery. I don't know if you're aware of it. There's some folks that actually say there were some benefits of slavery. It's unbelievable that that would even be uttered. As horrific as that 400-year nightmare was, those last two years for people that technically were declared free and still were enslaved, that is heavy because their freedom was already declared. And yet they still endured two more years of harsh dehumanizing treatment and their lives were not reconciled to the reality of what was declared. Spiritually speaking, that's what Romans is telling us. That God has declared us free from sin. That we died with Christ. We rose with him. But there is a gap that often exists in our lives between what God has done and how we live in it. And what shortens that gap, eliminates that gap, is us doing the work of considering ourselves in light of what God has done. What that means for us is that some of us, the, the difference maker right now in your Christian life is not God doing something new for you, is you considering what he's already done and actually appropriating that, standing on that. You realize if God does no other miracle for us, he's already done the greatest miracle that could have ever been done through his death, burial, and resurrection. And some of us are waiting for God to do something additional. You know, Jesus will not do something additional to the cross to make you free. He already purchased your freedom and mine. He won't do anything to make us righteous beyond what he's already done. He's already done it. We're waiting for God to do something new, some spiritual experience, some moment in prayer, some moment of reading scripture, we're waiting for some aha moment now. Meanwhile, what we're told is it's not coming through an aha moment. It's not coming by God doing something new. It's coming as you and I consider what has already been done and reconciling ourselves to that truth. One of the reasons why there is absolutely no replacement for corporate gatherings for being together in settings like this or small groups is that it's in spaces like this that you and I could actually mutually help us to reckon 
with what God has done. Where we reinforce to each other, let's remind each other what Jesus has done for each other. Let's, let's, let's sing about what he's done. One of the reasons why certain songs, certain songs will get you elevated because they appeal to your emotions, the melody is good, and I get it. I, no, nowhere does it say in scripture that we should sing like terrible songs, you know? Um, sing songs that don't make you happy, and that's spiritual. That doesn't exist in the Bible. However, some songs have no scriptural depth whatsoever. They're just like basically love songs to Jesus. And so they're, they're just a lot of sentimentality, but they don't have scriptural truth. But then there's certain songs, hymns, even modern songs, that when you, when you sing those words, the reason why it stirs your soul is because they're reflecting scripture's reality for you. And so this morning, as we sang, we're no longer slaves to sin. You know why that resonates? Because that's Romans 8.14. That's straight from there. When you sing the truth over God, of God over your life and we sing it to each other and we speak it to each other, what we help each other do is to no longer live in the bondage of the old master, death and sin, but to live in light of who Christ is and what he's done. One of my favorite quotes by Walter Brueggemann, he says, we keep meeting to say them to one another, God's truth. Because if left unsaid, the old powers of death creep back in and take over. We say them to one another because we depend on the fresh utterance to give fresh edge of possibility to our lives. I love that phrase. We, we say them to one another because if we don't, the old powers of death creep back in. You and I need each other because apart from community, our default will be that the old powers of death will creep back in. But together we can help each other reckon ourselves, consider ourselves in light of what God has done. I have a pastor friend that told me a story. And when I tell you this story, I hope it makes you want to pray for pastors. <coughs> Please hear me. Um, some of you have incredibly difficult jobs. I'm not of the persuasion like, oh, your job is hard, but, oh, pastor, this job is so hard. No, so, some of your jobs, if I had to do them, I'd have a meeting with my family and be like, y'all going to starve. I'm not going to do that job. You know, like, <laughs> it, you guys have really difficult jobs. However, um, sometimes there's moments as a pastor I'm like, oh, my gosh, the stuff that is involved in this job. A friend of mine, he stepped into a pastoral counseling situation with this couple um, and they were having really difficult marital problems and unbeknownst to him when he arrived at their home they had had a miscarriage and the miscarriage took place in their home and the child that was delivered unborn in their home they kept the child in the freezer, lifeless, frozen, in the freezer. And as he told me that story, I'm like, man, what did you do? Because he didn't know he was walking into this. You really, you, I want you to factor in. You know you're walking into a counseling situation. You know there's difficulty. And then you hear this. And you're like, oh, my gosh. 
this, this tragically, this, this family was struggling in a really difficult way, but essentially they were conforming life around this unborn child, this lifeless baby. And as you think about how perplexing and how heart-wrenching and how like, oh my gosh, what is that? Like, how do you, you can't live life functionally and, and where's the, the, the need for health and breakthrough in that situation because living people are conforming their life to a dead baby. I know that's a graphic example and it's jarring. Intentionally, it's jarring because I want us to reconcile the fact that spiritually, the equivalent of us being comfortable with sin would be the equivalent of us becoming comfortable and normalizing living life with a dead being in our home. Jesus has buried this former state of our lives. And now the journey of us as his followers is one of continuously reconciling, considering ourselves, accounting our lives according to what God has done. And here is the raw, unfiltered truth that I think we don't want to hear and that is that this journey of reconciling and considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, it is not an overnight thing. It is a process that will happen over and over and over. And it's a process that will happen not just over and over by yourself, but over and over with others. In fact, in the original language, that word consider, it, it has a plural sense to it, where the considering, the reckoning is happening in a multitude of ways, in, in like multi-directions, by many factors. Do you know that obeying Jesus and following Jesus is not a solo project? It's not a solo assignment. I don't know about you, but in school, I hated group projects hated them. I'm just like, I know what I'm going to bring to the table. I don't know what you're bringing to the table. And we're going to find out who's going to try to coast and who's not going to do their work. And some of you, if you're grinning now, I don't know if that grin is, I was the coaster, or if you can resonate. But that feeling of not everybody's going to carry their own weight, oh, it's frustrating. And so my, I'm going to do it myself. Spiritually speaking, there is no do-it-yourself version of Christianity. You cannot accurately consider yourself, reckon yourself, account yourself dead to sin and alive to God apart from community. In other words, if you don't have a community of people around you that are actively reminding you to see yourself as God sees you, then you and I have probably already forgotten, and we may not even know it. We're probably off base already from the reality of God. If you and I don't have a community around us that remind us and recenter us and pull us back to what God has said about us. I remember when I first, 
was a young Christian. At this point, I might have been 19, 20. And so I, I, I was single. I hadn't met my wife yet. I wanted to meet somebody. How many single people in the house? You can raise your hand. It's a good season of life. I love being single. Um, absolutely loved it. It was one of the best times of my life serving God. Um, but it was difficult as well. And it was difficult because you want to meet somebody, uh, you, want to, you want companionship. And then as a Christian, it can be also challenging because if you're trying to follow Jesus in this world and you're trying to follow Jesus according to his ethics and the world is constantly telling you, no, do it this way, do it that way, it can be really difficult. So college, there was a few moments where I was really tested in that. And one moment was this required uh, English course. I remember, I think it was English. And there was this young lady in the class who was an accomplished cellist. She used to travel the world with this orchestra. And uh, we had a few interactions, but I was just kind of like my head in the books, not really paying attention to anything. And then one day after school, she stops me and she says, hey, uh, after class, before my next class, she was like, hey, whatever you're going to do after class, I came today specifically to tell you, you're not going to do that and we're going to hang out. I was like, oh, wow, she's aggressive. And so, okay, I'm going to hang out with her, apparently. And so after that settles in, this panic comes over my heart because I'm like, I know if we hang out, what is going to happen? She had her own apartment. Um, She had a Mercedes Benz. I had a Metro card. Come on, do the math, you know? Like, she was very smart. And so I'm just like, "Ah." so I'm, I'm going to class, and I'm like, I can't do this. This is going to be bad. If I hang out with her, I'm going to compromise. I'm going to end up hurting her. Her impression of a Christian man is going to be really jacked up. And so I'm stressing. And so on my way to class, I call my friend David, who I knew was going to be at his desk at work because he was in charge of a help desk at uh, Goldman Sachs. And so I called him. I said, hey, I got class. You got like a, a minute or two. I need you to remind me, quote every verse of scripture you possibly can, why I should not hang out with this girl later because I know where I'm at. And so I said, go. And then all of a sudden, he's just firing scriptures at me. He's trying to remind me. And so now I get to class, and I sit there in class. I don't remember what the class was. My heart was beating. I'm just like, man, I got to do the right thing. I don't want to mess up. Um, Because maybe this seems extreme or dramatic, but I can tell you, In my honest, in the most honesty I can, there have been moments in my life where what God said about me and my reconciling or considering were not on the same page. I knew what God wanted me to do, and yet I knew what my soul, my memory, my reflexes were telling me to do, and they needed to get on the same page. That was one of those moments. And so as I leave the class, uh, she's coming down the quad in Brooklyn College, and she's about like 50 feet away from me. As she gets close, I say, stop. No joke. This literally happened. If there was a camera, that's what it, she was reacting. I said, look, I know you want to hang out with me, but you really don't want to hang out with me. Because if we hang out, you're going to regret it. Uh, this may seem weird, but I know I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt you because I'm going to give in to desires and impulses that to you may seem okay. But I want to follow Jesus and I want to honor him and I don't want to hurt you. And by the end of it all, she was like, okay, I thoroughly convinced her that I was crazy and she didn't bother me anymore. (laughs) That example may seem intense or exceptional, but I can tell you so many other moments 
where there have been key people in my life that reminded me of who God said I am and what he's done and said, Chris, live in light of that. Reconcile yourself to that. When we invite our community into small groups, into church-wide retreats, we're not just inviting you just to have a good time, though we hope you have a good time. We're ultimately really inviting us to foster the kind of friendships that can help each other consider ourselves in light of who God says we are. That's the kind of community we want to forge where we can receive that from one another and be that to one another. Repentance is a group project. You and I don't repent on our own. It's a group project. We need each other. Full repentance can only really happen over the course of time and in community. I realize that community can be difficult, and there are people that have been genuinely hurt by the church, and so you can feel skittish to get around community. But I'll say the opposite. I'll say something else about that. I think sometimes it's not so much that the church has hurt us, and that's why we're afraid to engage. Sometimes it's because we know that being in community is going to force us to face some things about ourselves that it would be easier to ignore. And so we choose not to be in community, not because of the hurts of the past, but we choose to be in community because maybe unconsciously we're avoiding repentance. Repentance happens in a group. As we close, I want you to see something really remarkable about verse 12 and onward. It says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. I wish we had more time, but I really want to close so we could pray and just come before God. If you spend time in Romans 6, you'll realize that we're not just being told to consider ourselves dead to sin, we're also told to consider ourselves alive to God. And we're not just told to not let sin reign in your body, but we're also told to grow in righteousness. It's important for us to have that balance because sometimes we can reduce our faith to sin management, where we spend all our time following Jesus and our energy is just focused on, I need to sin less. But can I tell you, that's a lot of energy being spent in only one direction. We need to spend just as much time growing in righteousness, considering ourselves alive to God, understanding the implications of being resurrected with Jesus and walking in newness of life and what that means. And toward that end, when you look at Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son, that parable. Notice what repentance looks like for that older brother. His repentance involved a feast. His repentance involved a celebration. In other words, repentance was him being awakened 
And his whole soul, body, his taste, everything was being awakened back to God. If you and I only spend our time being dead to sin, but don't spend enough time saying, but I'm alive to God in righteousness. And being alive to him in righteousness looks like us being awakened by Jesus to his goodness as he turns us toward life. There's some Christians I've met where I'm convinced they were baptized in vinegar because it's just so sour and, and just never happy. It's, it's like, which Jesus are we walking with? He doesn't just tell you to pick up your cross. He also says, I invite you to life more abundantly. And Romans 6 invites us to park our hearts in both spaces. You're dead to sin, but you're also alive to righteousness. Could I invite us to stand? In a moment, we're going to begin to sing and worship. But before we do so, at this time, we're going to receive communion together. When you came in, hopefully you received a cup to receive communion. But if you did not, all you have to do is just raise your hand very quickly and someone will come by and give you the elements to receive communion. If you, if you just keep your hand up. Someone will be by very, very shortly. As we prepare to receive the, the bread, 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verse 23 and onward says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your broken body that you have done on our behalf. You were broken for us. And we remember your sacrifice. We reconcile ourselves to it. We consider ourselves dead to sin because you died for us. We receive your body. Let's receive together. As we prepare to receive the cup, in verse 25, it says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice of your life, your shed blood on the cross. The guiltless died for the guilty, the sinless for the sinful. And we thank you that in your sacrifice, our shame is lifted, our guilt is washed, and we are reconciled to the Father. 
we receive your sacrifice. We remember what you have done. Let's receive the cup. Thank you, Jesus. At this time, as the worship team leads us, the prayer team is in the back. They would love to pray with you regarding anything that you need prayer for, the words that were shared, anything the sermon might have stirred for you. Over these next few moments as we worship, all you have to do is slip out of your seat and go to the back. They would love to pray with you. Let's turn to God and worship and song and prayer in these next few moments.